Good afternoon, everybody. This is Omar Serrano with the Tilted Lawyer Podcast, and I am covering the case of Rex Huberman. And this case, I haven't heard a whole lot. I mean, obviously, everybody's heard a lot about it as far as last week or so, but if you could have ever imagined a horror story where in the darkest corners of humanity where innocence meets its dreadful end, you hear a story like this one where you have a literal demon walking around in the general public and he has been arrested. Um, He was a 59-year-old married guy with children. We're going to tell his story uh, coming up next. Let's get started. Whatever you might be going through and wherever you might be, this is Omar Serrano with the Tilted Lawyer Podcast. I'm here to take your mind off of things. Yes, I'm an attorney. No, I'm not giving you legal advice. I'm going to sit and talk like people as these are the candid thoughts of one practicing attorney and it's after hours. So have a seat. Feel free to have a drink and join me. Let's get started. All right, a debuting a new intro for the show um, this afternoon. Bet it. The Gilgo Beach murders. Um, before we dive into any of the new uh, developments, let's take a look back at what's been going on for over a decade in Gilgo Beach. And if you're not familiar with that part of the country, it's in uh, Long Island, Fire Island, um, in New York. Um, on the northeast corner bordering uh, Canada. For the last 10 years or so, um, there has been this mystery. Um, The crimes have been unsolved up until now, seemingly. There's been a string of 11 murders over the course of a decade. The ones that we are focusing on is the present four And we're going to talk a little bit about those, but the victims, their lives, you know, their fateful circumstances surrounding their disappearances. Um, Essentially, the story of the Gilgo murders began in the spring of 2010, where people came up on these grisly discoveries that were made near Gilgo Beach, on the southern shore of Long Island, there was a sinister story that was starting to unravel because of the nature of the crimes. By the spring of 2011, authorities had discovered that there there were 10 sets of human remains and the crime scene, it was spra- it sprawled from the park near New York City limits to a resort uh, near the community of Fire Island, Um, out to uh, far eastern Long Island, and the victims were predominantly young women, several of whom were sex workers. And one of the crucial events that led to the series of discoveries was the disappearance of a lady named Shannon Gilbert on about May 1st of 2010. So she vanished after she called 911 from the Oak Beach home of a client's Months later, 
as a police officer and his cadaver dog was searching for remains, they found the body of a different woman in the thickets alongside nearby Ocean Parkway. And soon thereafter, three other bodies were found all within a short walk of one another. So I have in my hands or on my screen the arrest affidavit that they used to arrest this guy, Rex Hewerman. And we're going to go over all of the evidence that's been collected that law enforcement has disclosed, much like the Brian Koberger case when they released their arrest affidavit. A lot of the stuff that they have, they're not disclosing. I don't know if there's going to be a gag order in this case the same way there, there's been with Brian Koberger. But the details in this 32-page affidavit are disturbing. And we're going to go through those a little bit later. Um, the victims. Amidst the unfolding investigation and the scrutiny on Hewerman, uh, the victims of the Gilgo Beach murders are... Um, people like Maureen Brainard Barnes. She was 25 when she went missing. She was believed to have traveled from New London, Connecticut to Manhattan on or around July 6th of 2007. There's another young lady by the name of Melissa Bartholomew, last seen at her residence in the Unionport section of the Bronx on July 12th of 2009 when she was about 24 years old. There was Megan Waterman, 22 at the time when she disappeared around June 6th of 2010. There was Amber Lynn Costello, who was 27 when she was last seen by acquaintances. Their lives were abruptly cut short, leaving their families in a state of lingering grief and a quest for justice, which is where we found ourselves. So how, after this decade-long search, did we zero in on Rex Hewerman? Well, Rex Hewerman is a 59-year-old architect from Massapenka Park, a seemingly ordinary guy. You see pictures of him. Um, he's just a regular guy. He looks like a typical New York. And if you've ever seen video of him and heard him speak, he speaks like he's from New York. Uh, very gruff personality, but a family man, seemingly, nonetheless. Um... Married, father of two. Uh, he stands accused right now of being the Gilgo Beach killer. Um, how did he end up the prime suspect in what has been the most notorial, notorial, notorious serial killer cases of recent memory? Um, well, let's talk about it. Um, essentially... This is what they have on him. They've been following him around for about a decade. Technology played a pivotal role in solving the case, or at least directing them to Rex Huberman. They used, meaning they meaning law enforcement, used mobile phone records, um, internet search histories, and we're going to talk a, li a little bit about those. Uh, there was DNA analysis that was provided uh, that proved essential in implicating him and they, they, they basically pulled from his garbage um, DNA that he had left on like a pizza slice or something like that. Um, 
He used burner phones to contact his victims, and he made searches on those burner phones that they were able to track uh, and, and, and trace, leading it straight to them. Uh, but the main breakthrough uh, linking Huberman's DNA to the crime scene was via a pizza crust, not even a slice, pizza crust um, that they dug out of the garbage. And uh, that's how it led them uh, to Mr. Huberman. Um, let's go through some of the arrest affidavit because I think that that's going to answer a lot of questions. Right now, what they're charging him with, they have him charged with, I'm counting three counts of second-degree murder, three counts of first-degree murder. There is another that they, there is a fourth victim that they're trying to pin on him. He hasn't been charged with the murder of her just yet, but they're zeroing in on him. Uh, Murder in the first degree in violation of New York State Penal Law Section 125.271A, Class A1 violent felony in the death of Melissa Bartholomew. Murder in the first of Megan Waterman. Murder in the first of Amber Costello. He's also being charged with murder in the second degree of those three young ladies. And they are working actively on a fourth. Not to mention there are 11 victims, seven of which have yet, as far as, I'm, as, as far as I can tell, have yet to be identified. But there are 11 people that they think he's responsible for murdering. And they are fast. I mean, they're going to have plenty of time. He's not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, they're not going to issue him bond in this case. He's going to—he's basically going to be in jail um, until we litigate these things. You should know that his defense attorney, whom he's been assigned, who has just been assigned to the case, doesn't know anything about the case, um, has been very coy in just simply stating, "Look, I just—I just got this case. I don't know much. I could just tell you this: that he was crying in my office." denying that he did these things, vehemently denying that he's responsible for these murders. So he is going to put up a defense, whether or not sometime, you know, in the near future, he ends up ultimately confessing, similar to how, you know, Christopher Watts, while he was waiting for his trial, decided to confess to everything and took away people's ability to testify. Remains to be seen. But for... This arrest affidavit, this is what law enforcement has on him. Um, As described below, based on the serious heinous nature of these serial murders, the planning and forethought that went into these crimes, the strength of the people's case, the length of incarceration the defendant faces upon conviction, the extended period of time that this defendant was able to avoid apprehension, his recent searches for sadistic materials, child pornography, images of the victims and their relatives, counter-surveillance conducted online as to the criminal investigation, his use of fictitious names, burner email and cell phone accounts, and his access to and history of possessing firearms, firearms, the only means to ensure defendant Rex Huberman's return to court is to remand him without bail. <clears throat> as the people are arguing in this affidavit. Um, and then they go on to talk about how the victims were discovered. So on December 11th, 2010, police officer John Malia was conducting a training exercise with his canine partner, Blue, along Ocean Parkway in Gilgo Beach, Suffolk County, New York. 
During the course of the training exercise, Blue located a set of remains. The remains were later identified to be those of Melissa Bartholomew. Two days later, on December 13th of 2010, the SCPD continued to search in proximity to where the remains of Melissa Bartholomew were recovered. On that date, members of the SCPD found three additional sets of human remains within one quarter mile of the first discovery. There's an image of it below. Um, These three additional sets of remains were identified as those of Maureen Brainard Barnes, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. The cause of death of all four women were identified to be homicidal violence. And I'm going to share with you guys some of those images. So if I go to this screen, um, you can kind of see what they're talking about. If I zoom in there. In the arrest affidavit, um, they're all right along this little coastline here. Um, Number one, that's Maureen uh, Brainard Barnes' remains where she was found. Number two is Melissa Bartholomew, uh, just a short distance from there. Number three was Megan Waterman. Number four was Abbott Costello. But this is the general area right off of Fire Island. Funny thing, my brother used to be a bartender in that area. I don't even know how familiar he is with this area, but um, it's, it's, a, it, it's known as a party town, collegiate. Um, in nature. Um, That's where all of these people were. Um, But moving on in the arrest affidavit, um, the investigations into these deaths were linked as in addition to other factors, the victims each appeared to have been placed in close proximity to one another, 22 to 33 feet from the edge of the parkway. All were petite females, approximately 22 to 27 years old, believed to be working as sex workers. All had missing clothing and personal possessions. All had been killed by homicide. All had contact shortly before their disappearances with a person using a burner cell phone and the cell phones of two of the four victims. Um, There's a footnote here um, that although the defendant is not yet charged with any crimes, I said this appearance of the murder of Miss Brainard Barnes, as set forth below, Defendant Rex Hewerman is the prime suspect in her death. And that's the fourth that we were talking about. They're trying to uh, charge him, but they're inevitably going to do it. There's no chance. They got him with these three. They're not going to leave out this fourth. Um, And it wouldn't surprise me if he's facing essentially 22 counts of first and second degree murder um, by the time all of this is said and done, because there's 11 known victims that have accumulated over the course of 13 years. Um, The recent investigation. So in January 22, the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office assigned an experienced team of investigators, analysts, and prosecutors to work jointly with law enforcement partners from the Suffolk County Police Department, New York State Police, Suffolk County Sheriff's Office, and FBI. A comprehensive review of every item of evidence and information in this investigation was undertaken by the team. On March 14th of 2022, approximately two months into the renewed joint investigation, this comprehensive review led to the discovery of a first-generation Chevrolet Avalanche that was registered to defendant Rex Hewerman at the time of these murders. As described below, this was significant because a witness to the disappearance of Amber Costello identified a first-generation Chevrolet Avalanche as a vehicle believed to have been driven by her killer. The discovery led to a comprehensive investigation of defendant Hewerman, which consisted of over 300 subpoenas 
search warrants, and other legal processes to obtain evidence. As discussed more fully below, among the items uncovered were cell phone billing records for defendant Hewerman, corresponding to cell site locations, uh, for the burner cell phones used to arrange the meetings with three of the four victims, the taunting calls made to a relative of Miss Bartholomew, a call made by a detective to Miss Bartholomew's cell phone while looking into her disappearance, and calls checking voicemail on Miss Brainerd Barr's cell phone after her disappearance. In addition, Hewerman lived in Massapeka Park, where the victims were believed to have disappeared from, and he worked in Midtown Manhattan, in the vicinity where the taunting calls were made to the sister of Miss Bartholomew. What do I know about this guy? Um, I mean, other than what's come out, watching some of the video interviews that have been flown about on uh, social media and otherwise, um, he's an architect. If you listen to any of his interviews in his architectural capacity, he's full of himself. I remember, I forget which video it was, but there's a video where he was talking about his job. And it's like when it's not a routine job and where it's complex, then I'm the guy they call because I'm the guy that could get it done. Um, which kind of gives you some insight about what this guy thinks of himself. He thinks of himself as highly intelligent. He probably thinks um, among him having these narcissistic traits um, that he's a lot smarter than he is. And he probably gets off on taunting psychologically. Uh, well, he certainly did taunt the, the, the family members of the victims that he knew that he murdered, if indeed he murdered them. Um, he's a sick, sick person. And the way that they linked him to all of these things is they connected all of his burner phones, his main cell phone, his car, his vehicle, and they have a history probably going back 10 years of communication with different various people within the web of individuals that would have been linked to the victims. That's what brought him down. You can only get away with that for so long. So he's been doing this. He's been taunting and trolling the family members of these victims and, you know, it wasn't until just recent where they finally get him. And now he's in his attorney's office crying, saying that, oh, it wasn't me. I swear it wasn't me that did all of these things. Husband and uh, father of two children. Whom, by the way, um, his wife just filed for a divorce. Um, and imagine what that lady must be going through. And I wonder how much she knew or was clued into all of his dealings with all of this stuff. Imagine you just wake up to find that your, your partner, your spouse is the perpetrator of all of these crimes. And <clears throat> not just that, but it happens to be one of the most notorious serial killer investigations since probably BTK. And all of these new details are coming out. And this is just the start. I mean, you know, it's made its way to the media, news stations, Law and Crime Network, what have you, Court TV. Certainly, they're going to probably televise this trial. YouTubers are now getting a hold of, of this content and going over and, and disclosing all of the details that they're coming across. Um, no doubt there's going to be documentaries about this guy made. Um, and she's been married to this guy for however long, not to mention his children. And they're finding out that she's been married to a demon, a murderer of sex workers, 
but not even just that. It wasn't, I mean, BTK, if you recall his case, he was a guy that, you know, he certainly, he killed people, but taunting the families is a step beyond anything I can really recall with any serial killer case that I can think of off the top of my head. If I think back to Ted Bundy, who had a a similar MO, he would um, ingratiate himself into the uh, presence of young women, gain their trust, and then he would murder them. Uh, BTK would hunt and stalk his victims, um, but he wasn't going about the business of trolling the surviving family members. This guy is a different level of evil where not only did he take their family members, but he got off on taunting and trolling his family members, their family members, after the fact. I'm not sure what level of evil is required to do such a thing as that, but I promise you this, the FBI and all of their psychological profile people um, are already on this case, and they're going to be vigorously documenting Um, the various details that come out about this case going forward. Um, Let's continue with this affidavit. Um, Let's go into the disappearance and murder of Maureen Brainerd Barnes. This is what they have on her. So Maureen was last seen on July 9th of 2007 in New York City. At that time, she she was believed to be working as a sex worker. On July 6th of 2007, Ms. Brainerd Barnes' cell phone was contacted by a burner cell phone between July 6, 2007 and July 9th of 2007. There were 16 interactions between this burner phone and Barnes' cell phone. On July 9th of 2007, the last cell site location for the Brainerd Barnes' cell phone was at approximately 11.56 p.m. in Midtown Manhattan near the 59th Street Bridge. Thereafter, Barnes' cell phone had no further activity until July 12, 2007. On July 12, 2007, three days after her disappearance, two outbound calls were made from Barnes' cell phone, checking her voicemail from a site location near the Long Island Expressway in in Islandia. Going into the disappearance of Melissa Bartholomew, she was last seen on July 10th of 2009, in New York City. And at the time, she was believed to be working as a sex worker. And on July 3rd of 2009, Miss Bartholomew was contacted by a burner cell phone. Thereafter, uh, the Bartholomew cell phone was contacted by this burner cell phone on July 6th, July 9th, and July 10th, which was the last day that she was seen alive. And on July 10th of 2009, cell site records indicate the burner cell phone traveled from Massapeka Park to Midtown Manhattan where Mr. Human worked. And later that evening, the Bartholomew cell phone traveled from Midtown Manhattan to Massapeka with the last cell site location being in Massapeka on July 11th, 2009 at around 1.43 a.m. So if I'm just reading between the lines, multiple cell phone calls, multiple communications, this was a plan that he conducted and he's gaining the trust of these sex workers and probably meeting them and seeing them on multiple occasions before he ultimately carries out the act of murdering them. It appears like that, that is his MO based on what we've read so far. Um, on July 11th of 2009, Miss Bartholomew's cell phone was used to make an outbound call, checking her voicemail 
from a cell site location in Freeport. On July 11th and July 12th, the Bartholomew phone made two more outbound calls, checking her voicemail from cell site locations in Babylon. On July 17th and July 23rd, August 5th, August 19th, August 26th of 2009, the Bartholomew phone made taunting phone calls to Miss Bartholomew's family members, some of which resulted in a conversation between the caller, who was a male, and a relative of Miss uh, Bartholomew, in which the male caller admitted killing and sexually assaulting Miss Bartholomew. As described below, the cell site locations of the Bartholomew phone during these taunting phone calls were all... <clears throat> In Midtown Manhattan. I wonder who he was talking to. I mean, I wonder if it was like her dad or something. Or if it was uh, her husband, boyfriend. But he's clearly getting off on telling people the details of what he did uh, to these young women. Going into the disappearance and the murder of uh, Megan Waterman. Um... Pardon me, let me fix my uh, my setup here so I can see what's going on with the live stream. How are you, Mantra? Mantra Head, and good afternoon to you as well. Um, I'm glad you like the intro. Uh, Miss uh, Pika, Miss Massapika. I think I got it. It was a, it was, it was a funny, it was a funny pronouncing it at first, but I think of, I think, I think of, uh, I've solved it. Um, but let me continue. Going into the disappearance of uh, Megan Waterman. She was last seen alive at the um, Holiday Inn in Hapage, New York, on June 6th of 2010 at approximately 1.30 a.m. At that time, she was believed to be working as a sex worker, his M.O. On June 5th of 2010, Miss Waterman's cell phone was contacted by another burner cell phone, which had just been activated that day. Thereafter, the Waterman phone communicated with this burner cell phone on June 6th of 2010 at approximately 1.31 a.m., which is around the time Megan Waterman was captured on video surveillance exiting the Holiday Inn in Hopage for the last time. Following that communication, the burner cell phone had no further phone activity. However, cell site records show that the Waterman police traveled to Massapeka Park with the last cell site location being in Massapeka Park, at approximately 3.11 a.m. in the vicinity of the residence of the defendant, Hewerman. Going into the disappearance of Amber Costello. So she was last seen alive on September 2nd, 2010, leaving her residence at 1112 America Avenue in West Babylon during the late evening hours. And at that time, she was believed to be working as a sex worker. This whole thing with the sex workers... I mean, they've historically been, I mean, going back to the times of um, Jack the Ripper in the 1880s, um, the targets of serial killers. Why? Because they're easy targets. Because presumably to the serial killers, they lack uh, the requisite amount of people that would care if they were gone. If you follow a certain stereotype of sex worker. So they go and they prey upon these people. They're easy targets. You could pay for their time and their attention. So you don't have to have the charm of, say, like a Ted Bundy or, um, I don't know, any of the, the more charming serial killers that we've come across. Um, 
they're easily manipulated and they pretty much do what you tell them to do because that's how they make their money. They lure them in to whatever cave they bring them into and then they commit these murders. Um, but then again, this, this human character takes it a step further and goes through their, finds out who their relatives are, finds out their contact information and taunts them and tells them probably in explicit detail. You could imagine getting that kind of a phone call where um, just imagine your family member has gone missing. And then here is this demon that calls you on the phone and he starts candidly reciting exactly how she died. That there's no mystery in the disappearance. You're going to find her body somewhere along the shore, explicitly detailing what he did to her before she died, the sexual assault that he perpetrated on her, and probably whatever witty quips that he has for the relatives to um, presumably get their blood boiling enough to, you know, get off on it. And there's nothing you could do because you don't know who I am and you're never going to find me. And good luck. I'll see you in hell or saying some kind of ghastly thing like that. I can only imagine what those phone calls were like. Um, continuing with Amber Costello on September 1st of 2010, the day prior to her disappearance, uh, her cell phone was contacted by a burner. On September 1, 2010, uh, this burner cell phone had communications with the Costello phone at approximately 11.33 and at 11.34. During those communications, the burner cell phone connected to cell site towers in West Amityville and Massapequa Park. Thereafter, the burner cell phone traveled to West Babylon in proximity to the residence of Amber Costello and had contact with the Costello phone at approximately 12.05 a.m. on September 2nd, 2010. According to witnesses around the time of these communications between the burner cell phone and the Costello phone on September 1st to 2nd, 2010, the prostitution client showed up at Miss Costello's residence located in West Babylon, New York, and after the client entered the home, a new a ruse was executed on the client whereby a person pretended to be the outraged boyfriend of Amber Costello and the client left from the residence while Amber retained the money the client had brought to pay for her services. Based upon interviews, that client was described as a large white male, approximately six foot four to six foot six in height in his mid forties with dark bushy hair and a big oval style 1970s type eyeglasses. A witness described him to police as appearing like an ogre. Furthermore, a witness noticed a first-generation Chevrolet avalanche parked in the driveway of the residence. And according to the witness, following the ruse, this client said he had he was just a friend. Tell her I'll give her a call. Walks out the front door. Thereafter, at approximately 1.18 a.m. on September 2nd, after the ruse had been perpetrated, the burner cell phone sent to a text message to the Costello phone, which stated, this was not nice, so do I... SIC, there's a, there's a typo, uh, credit for next time. Trying to take credit for it. Phone records show that the burner phone was located in Massapequa Park within two minutes of this text message being sent where human lived. Um, according to a witness later that day on September 2nd of 2010, Miss Costello was again contacted by the same client that was in the house the night before the avalanche um, 
Further, Amber told us that he wanted to see her again, but he didn't want to come back to the house because of her boyfriend. Thereafter, on September 2nd, 2010, at around 9.32 p.m., the same burner cell phone from the previous evening again communicated with the Costello phone. During this communication, the burner cell phone used a cell site location in Midtown Manhattan. Following this communication and based upon the cell site records, the burner cell phone traveled to Massapequa Park and had contacts with the Costello phone at approximately 10.39 and 11.05 p.m. Cell site records for the burner phone indicate that at approximately 11.17 p.m., the phone travels to West Babylon in proximity to the residence of Amber Costello. Subsequently, Amber left her cell phone behind, walked out the front door of the residence, and was seen alive for the last time. Shortly after Miss Costello left the house, a witness observed a dark-colored truck pass the house, specifically coming from the direction Amber had walked towards. Um, records established that defendant Huberman's wife was out of New York for the disappearances of Bartholomew Waterman and Costello. So his wife is out on some business trip and he's over here mur- murdering prostitutes. By the way, that, um, that description <clears throat> that we just read, I want you guys to see uh, a picture of this guy. So this, this is a uh, Rex Huberman. Described as about six foot six, six foot four, ogre like. This is him. If I could zoom in on this. Well, this is his mugshot, and then going down, these are the victims. Um, but there was an image that I just lost. But if you look at these images of him, I mean, look at this guy. This is him. This is him. This guy in the gray shirt. This is uh, Rex Hewerman, I'm assuming. Or is that him? Or is that just his family? That actually doesn't look like him. But yeah, that's him. Dark, bushy hair. I don't know if that's bushy hair or not, but he certainly, he certainly does look like he's about six foot six, six foot four. Um, he looks ogre-like. Like he could have been a WWE wrestler or something. That's a picture of him with his wife. Um, who he's been married to for some time. Uh, But yeah, I'd say that that description pretty much fits uh, Rex Human, Big, ogre-like looking, bushy, greasy looking guy. Going after and murdering prostitutes. Um, But let us continue uh, with the affidavit before I get too far off track. They're talking about the travel records, um, his travel records. So significantly, uh, the travel records, they show that on July 8th of 2009, Huerman's wife, she leaves the United States for Iceland. And on August 18th of 2009, Huerman's wife, that's when she comes back to the United States. Consequently, Huerman's wife was out of the country during the time of Melissa Bartholomew's disappearance, which makes sense. Based upon cell phone records on June 4th of 2010, cell phone uh, subscribed to by Huberman's wife traveled from New York to Maryland on June 8th of 2010. The cell phone subscribed to by Huberman's wife returned to New York. They're essentially, I I mean, not to go through all of these things, but they're just making the case that whenever she left town, that's when he would go into action. Um, he, he, he clearly had, um, a plan that he was executing and he needed his wife to be gone while he was doing it. And that's exactly what he did. 
Um, they talk about the cellular billing records for the cell phone of Rex Hewerman uh, during the time of the disappearances and murders of the victims. Hewerman owned an architectural business located in Midtown, and his business was then uh, was the named subscriber of Hewerman's cell phone, which was active during all the times of the victims' disappearances. So they're tying him. The affidavit is just keying on to the fact that they, they know it's Hewerman because he has all these burner phones, his cell phone records, the timing matches when he would have had opportunity to commit these murders, coinciding with the disappearances of the victims that is well-documented. Um, so th- th- that's how they're getting him. For example, on July 10th of 2009, the last day Melissa Bartholomew was seen alive, both the burner phone and defendant's Hewerman's phone were in the area of Massapeka and traveled together or towards New York City. And thereafter... Uh, both Bartholomew's phone and Hewerman's phone traveled eastbound towards Massapeka. I mean, so they got this guy. He's obviously, if he didn't kill them, he was certainly traveling with them. And so I don't know. I know that defense attorney, they kind of caught him off guard. They just handed him the case. And he goes, I don't, I just got this case. I haven't looked at anything. Um, I could only tell you that my guy was in my office crying and telling me that he didn't do it. And if I'm looking at this arrest affidavit, and by the way, I mean, just because the prosecution has generated or law enforcement has generated an arrest affidavit that has a lot of different evidence that they're relying on to make the arrest and bring charges, it doesn't mean that all of this evidence is going to be brought up in trial. It doesn't mean that all of this evidence is admissible. All it means is this is what they're saying that they have that leads them to believe that probably the person responsible for these murders is Rex Hewerman. That's all it means. And you know what? The evidence is probably a lot more extensive uh, than what has been detailed in this affidavit. Matter of fact, I guarantee you it's more extensive than that. The extent of the evidence, you're, you're just not going to know what they specifically have until we get to the actual trial. Um, I will juxtapose this case with the Brian Koberger case, when they came out with their arrest affidavit, some of the evidence that they used to tie in Brian Koberger's DNA <clears throat> to the victims at the at the at the crime scene um, was detailed, but not exactly. And there's been several motions that have gone on um, in that case that have tried to collect more evidence or have the people uh, disclose more evidence than what they have. Um, but we said back then it wasn't going to be the whole story and indeed it hasn't been. Um, but there's been a lot of people that are taking that is, Oh, this is all they have. And so Brian Koberger must be innocent or they didn't actually have Brian Koberger's DNA at the scene of the crime. I know I'm getting a little bit off track, but that's just not the way that that works. You're not going to know what they have against Brian Koberger until they actually do the trial. There's a gag order in that case. So people are saying that, Oh, this evidence leaked and you know, um, they have definitely, I've even seen a, 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 a some kind of surveillance video on the Brian Koberger case floating around out there purporting to be from the parking lot of the house where the victims the victims were slain. And there it's said that you could hear screams at around like 1130 at night, which would have been hours before the, or the murders actually took place. You got to take that stuff with a grain of salt. I know people are digging up a lot of that stuff, but just know that whatever is floating out there is likely not to have been leaked by a credible source, and I question the authenticity. If it comes out in trial, then great. But similarly uh, to this case, 
all of this evidence, there's a lot of cell phone stuff. That means there's going to be a lot of experts testifying to cell phone towers and things of that nature. Um, there's going to be a lot more evidence than is being disclosed in this affidavit. I just wanted to make that point because people get confused when we go over these affidavits that, oh, that's all there is, or wouldn't they have this, this, and that? Yeah, they probably do, but they didn't have to disclose every bit of information that they have in their report. They're simply detailing that, look, from 20,000 feet, this is what we have. It gets a lot deeper, but this is what we're basing it off of. This is why we are bringing charges. So just scanning down, I mean, this is a 32-page affidavit. I don't want to read the entire thing and put everybody to sleep. Um, <clears throat> but I wanted to get into some of the other stuff other than the cell phone stuff because it's quite extensive. I mean, they have, they've mapped him, you know, going around the state of New York um, in close proximity with the victim's um, in close proximity to his home, in close proximity to where he worked in Midtown Manhattan, they have them. Um, they talk about additional burner phones and online account activity linked to defendant Huerman. Okay, so in addition to the cell phone stuff, uh, give me one second. Let me just uh, make sure that we're still up and running. Yeah, we're doing good. Um, Lisa Lamb says that he's like a full foot taller than the car. Yeah, that guy was humongous. That guy was huge. Um, but definitely, I'm, I'm, he's definitely ogre-like, and that's, uh, he's, um, I couldn't even imagine, but he, uh, I don't know what he looks like. He just kind of looks like a jerk, you know? I mean, and that could go a lot of different ways. I mean, just a jerk in life, you know, just a guy that bullies people, the bullyish type with that strong New York uh, mentality. Um, he definitely was that, but he was also a killer. And he's also felt it incumbent upon himself to terrorize and torment the family members of, of these victims. But let's talk about other than the cell phone stuff. Um, the warrant goes on to talk about some of the internet stuff that they linked to Hewerman. So, Reading from, uh, what page am I on now? Page 17. As described herein, over the course of the comprehensive investigation of defendant Hewerman, investigators located a number of online accounts and burner cell phones linked to defendant Hewerman, but which were held by him in fictitious names and used for illicit activities. American, Ex American Express records obtained via subpoena revealed recurring Google Pay payments made by Hewerman to Tinder, which is an online dating and geosocial networking application used to find dates or hookups within a user's immediate vicinity. Records were then obtained from Tinder, which revealed that the Tinder profile was set up in the name Andy, which is Hewerman's middle name, which with links to a burner cell phone with a number of uh, 347-885-1697. I doubt that number's working anymore. <clears throat> subscribed in the fictitious name of Andrew Roberts using an email account springfieldman9 at AOL.com. So that email account was established with AOL on January 15th, 2011 in the fictitious name John Springfield with an Astoria, Queens, New York zip code using another burner cell phone with which record show has no named subscriber. 
Records obtained from Verizon show that defendant Hewerman's cell phone was used on December 11th, 2022 for a period of over three hours to access the fictitious Spring Feldman AOL, Spring Feldman 9 AOL account. Do people still have AOL email accounts? I haven't seen one of those in a really long time. A long time ago, a million years ago, I used to have an AOL email account. I didn't know that they were still around, honestly. Um, a review of call records for these two additional burner cell phones revealed that both cell phones were used extensively between 2021 and 2023 for prostitution-related contacts, either with sex workers or massage parlors, of course. In addition, cell site warrants for these burner cell phones revealed that just like the burner cell phones defendant Hewerman used to contact the victims prior to their disappearances, these additional burner cell phones had frequent cell site activity in Midtown Manhattan and Massapequa Park, of course. Let me just make sure that these are good. So, the records revealed that both these burner cell phones consistently had activity on the cell towers that provided coverage to defendant Hewerman's residence in Massapequa and his business in New York City. A legal process served on Google seeking records on accounts associated with the device. Identifiers of these additional burners, okay, it's just more information on this. Um, a search warrant revealed that the Thawk email account associated with burner cell phone number that we had discussed was used to conduct thousands of searches related to sex workers, sadistic torture-related pornography, and child pornography, including, so these are some of his searches, and they list 30 of them. Mistress Long Island, Mature Escorts, Manhattan, Girl Begging for Rape Porn, Teen Girl Begging for Rape Porn, Pretty Girl with Bruised Face, Torture, redhead, porn, 10-year-old schoolgirl. Um, I'm not going to say that word. Uh, skinny redhead tied up. Short fat girl tied up. Tied up and raped. Asian twink tied up. Tied slave, force-fed. Um, come, well, I, you know, I shouldn't be, I can't be saying all of these words. Um, it is a family show. Um, girl hogtied. 10-year-old blonde hair. Chubby 10-year-old. Black girl 10 years old. Girl with face beat up, chubby 10-year-old girl crying, 13-year-old. This is guy, this is a sick, sick individual. Age 12 child girl with blonde hair and blue eyes. So we had a type. Blonde hair girl, young, depressed. Teen girl oiled bodies. Preteen girl with makeup. Nude slave girls. Old janitors. Crying girl, painful. Schoolgirl, crying teen. So he's very clearly into individuals or content that features people that are in pain, people that are in, that are depressed, people that are subservient in some regard to something. That's what he was into. Um, to such a degree that um, he may have murdered 11 people. I guess we'll find out the truth of it all. Um, going further into these uh, search, this search history. So the Thok email account was also used 
to conduct in excess of 200 searches between March of 22 and June of 23 related to active and known serial killers. The specific disappearances and murders of Marine Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Ember Costello, and the investigation of their murders. These searches for articles accessed include, but are not limited to. Why could law enforcement not trace the calls made by the Long Island serial killer? Why hasn't the Long Island serial killer been caught? Long Island killer. Long Island serial killer phone call. Long Island serial killer update. Long Island serial killer update 2022. FBI active serial killers. Serial killers by state 2023. Clearly he's trying to, I guess, check the scorecard of, of law enforcement. Map of all known serial killers. Unsolved serial killer cases. America's five most notorious old cases. 11 currently active serial killers, eight terrifying active serial killer killers that we can't find. John Bitroff, search for Megan Waterman, search for Melissa Bartholomew, search for Maureen Brainerd Barnes. There is a redacted name of a relative from Bartholomew, a redacted name of a relative from Waterman. Uh, Cops launch Gilgo Beach Homicide Investigation Task Force, mapping the Long Island murder victims. Inside the Long Island serial killer and Gilgo Beach, the Gilgo Beach killer, the Long Island serial killer investigation, new phone technology may be a break to, or a key to the break in the case. Interesting. So I wonder, so he's clearly been following certainly the Long Island case, um, but I wonder if he knew that law enforcement was closing in. Because if you just that last search number 24 in the string of searches that we just read, the Long Island serial killer investigation new phone technology may be key to breaking the case. I wonder if he knew that they were coming for him. I hope that he knew that they were coming for him. And what's more is I, I, I really hope that... Um, he lost sleep over it, and uh, who knows? Continuing on with this, uh, the Thawk email account was also used for a search for a number of podcasts and or documentaries regarding this investigation, as well as repeatedly viewing hundreds of images depicting the murdered victims and members of their immediate families. Where does he even get that kind of stuff? Significantly, uh, Hewerman also searched for and viewed articles concerning the very task force that was investigating him. And uh, they're showing pictures of the things that he was showing. I'll, I'll bring this up on the screen so you guys can see. Um, I mean, it's not much. It's just, uh, let me zoom in on this. These are the pictures in the affidavit where they linked uh, his um, internet searches to uh, what he was looking for. Uh, Mantra Hayden says that he's feeling sick. <laughs> she also, Mantra Hayden also still has an AOL, um, AOL email account. <laughs> oh, I, w- I wonder if mine still works. Maybe she, I wonder if I try to log into my AOL account from like back in the 90s, if it's still going to work. Um, I don't know. 
but I'm continuing on uh, with this affidavit. So, um, a search warrant was conducted on the fictitious Spring Feldman AOL account, further revealing selfie photographs that appear to have been taken by Hewerman of himself and sent to other persons to solicit and arrange for further sexual activity. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? This is a pictures of selfies that he was taking of himself trying to, uh, I don't know, pick up girls on Tinder. That's his profile picture. What do you guys think? I don't know. Is that enticing? But that's, uh, that's, um, I don't, I don't know. What would you grade his profile picture? Um, you know, if I'm looking at a, if, if I'm looking at a picture like that, I'm not sure if there are many young women in their mid twenties that would be attracted to that specific picture because it is a little ogreish. So I wonder um, if this was, well, I don't. I, I wonder what is. Um, if you go by his searches, he was looking for like mature mistresses or older women. Maybe he used this picture for those sites. Maybe he used it for Tinder. I don't know. Um. But clearly the, the victims in this case were all prostitutes. So he's, he's paying them for services. You know, I, I can't imagine those were the kind of women that would have been lured by a guy that looks like that. Or maybe that is. You never know. You never know. But um, moving along, moving along, uh, not to make light of all of these things, but uh, defendant Hewerman, he was further linked to a burner cell phone because on May 19th of 2023, just recently, Hewerman was observed by law enforcement via video and field surveillance at a cell phone store in Midtown Manhattan, purchasing additional minutes, which were added to this burner cell phone, the one that we've been talking to, and they got him on surveillance. This is a picture of it right here. I don't know if you guys could see that, but this is him going into a, a store to add more uh, cell phone minutes to his burner um, moving right along, there's another picture of him, another picture of him uh, buying stuff. So analysis of the AOL account also led to the discovery of another email account, hunter1903a3 at gmail.com, um, used on February 14th of 2021, just a couple years ago, uh, to send an image of a prostitute from upstate New York between two of human's secret email accounts, Further investigation revealed that the Hunter Google account was created on February 14th of 2021 on Valentine's Day using that same burner cell phone that we had been talking about, ending in 1697 as the user's phone number and SMS recovery number and subscribed in the fictitious name Andy Roberts, the same fake name that was linked to the Target Tinder profile and burner cell phone also ending in 1697 as well as used by another alias utilized by Hewerman in communications with numerous potential sex partners responding to his advertisements for sex and the fictitious birthday of August 6th of 1972. So he's 59 years old and he's trying to convince people that he was, I guess, 49 years old or in his 40s, um, assuming that he was advertising himself around 2021. Um I guess, part and parcel for websites that do that kind of thing. In addition, Google provided IP address information. 
So I haven't seen any of these adverse, by the way, but it says here, if I'm going off of this affidavit that he um, was advertising himself on various sex websites, trying to solicit people, I don't know. I don't know what kind of stuff he was into, but he was clearly after a certain type. Um, So based upon SCPD records for the official website, gilgonews.com, a website that is maintained by the SCPD to disperse news pertaining to this investigation. Human's home IP was used on May 23rd of 2020 and July 3rd of 2020 to access the official news concerning this investigation. Records obtained from JetBlue also show that the same IP address was also utilized to book flights for defendant Huerman and his wife in 2018. When analyzing the usage of all devices and accounts used by Huerman, there appears to be a clear pattern where Huerman used burner phones and burner junk email addresses to, number one, contact sex workers and sex partners to conduct extensive searches related to sex and prostitution, violence, sadistic, and child pornography, seek online information about the authorities investigating his crimes. These burner cell phones and email accounts with fictitious identities were used in an effort to conceal humans' true identity, conceal his criminal activity, unlawfully proposition sex, work, sex workers, and attempt to monitor the investigation of his crimes. Um, so, DNA analysis of hairs recovered from the examination of the victim's bodies. And so during the course of the investigation, each of the four victims' bodies were examined by a forensic scientist with the Suffolk County Crime Lab, which reveal as follows. So not only do they got a search history, they got the DNA, and we're, they're going to tell us about what they have so far. So, Miss Barnes had been left restrained by three leather belts, one of which was utilized to tie Barnes' feet, ankle, and legs together. Clearly, he's um, luring these people into a secluded place, probably not telling them the extent of what he plans on doing, and then he's torturing them, and this is kind of detailing a little bit of that. Um, During the examination of the belts, a female human hair recovered from the buckle of one of the belts by the Suffolk County Crime Lab. On or about December 18th of 2010, the Suffolk County Laboratory, um, this hair was able to determine that it corresponded to a Caucasian head hair fragment. And although his hair was not suitable for nuclear DNA profiling at that time, it was subsequently submitted for further DNA analysis, see below. Now they talk about Megan Waterman. So Waterman had been bound by clear or white duct tape during the course of the examination of Miss Waterman's body. Two two human female hairs were recovered, one from outside the head area and the other from the tape of the head area. Both hairs were recovered in the vicinity of Miss Waterman's head. An examination by the Suffolk County Laboratory indicated that the two female hairs on Waterman exhibited, exhibited Caucasian European characteristics, but were unsuitable for further DNA at that time. They go on to Amber Costello. Maybe I'll do it like this so that you guys can kind of see what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, I could do it like that. So, um, based on these new submissions, on or about February 24th, 
2023, forensic laboratory number one was able to conclude that one of the DNA profiles generated from the aforementioned bottles taken from defendant Huerman's residence indicated a female individual belonging to mitochondrial haplogroup K1C2, which is the same mitochondrial, I cannot talk, I apologize, mitochondrial haplogroup as the female hairs recovered from the three victims. This profile was then compared against the previously tested female hair sample. There's explaining how they have uh, some of the DNA and moving on with that. Um, you know, going about this evidence, it used to be that the big breakthrough for these murder cases um, was the discovery of the DNA. But as we start to get further technologically advanced with some of this stuff in these murder cases, I really feel like Google searches are essentially the new DNA and probably better evidence than the DNA. Cause as you can see here, they have, they've, they've recovered DNA, but there's issues with it. They're, they're going to have issues with it. They're going to have um, experts looking at this stuff and they're going to try to attack the DNA evidence. Fine. Attack the DNA evidence. But what are you going to do about all of these Google searches where he's specifically looking for these very specific things, the likelihood that that was an accident or somebody else conducting the searches is very small, considering that they've tracked him for over 10 years making these kinds of searches on these multiple cell phones that probably have cell phone location data that they've obviously clearly explained. That, to me, is almost open and shut, like to the point where we don't really need DNA and you know what? The defense attorney uh, for Hewerman went so far as to describe this as a borderline circumstantial case. Oh, I disagree, sir. Circumstantial, my ass. They got DNA. I mean, the, 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 the extent of the DNA, I'm not sure. We're going to find out. But they got his Google searches. It's like that other guy that we had covered from way back that coincidentally um, resembles Hewerman. Uh, his, his name escapes me right now, but they got Google, Google searches. They got cell phone location data. Um, they have um, his communications with these people. They have some form of DNA. Um, so there was a forensic laboratory exam. So on or about March 23rd of 2023, the Suffolk County Crime Lab requests forensic laboratory, a lab specializing in forensic mitochondrial analysis to conduct independent analysis, and let's see what they found. Um, I'll try not to read the scientific, but basically their conclusions are that the female hair on Costello indicated that the mitochondrial DNA profiles are the same at all compared positions common to and between samples, specifically at a rate that would as per the EOM POAP database, exclude 99.98% of the North American population from the female hair on Costello. In other words, it was her. <clears throat> There's some footnotes notes here. I'm not going to get too much into that. Um, there was another test uh, that compared the profile associated with the DNA sample from Huberman's wife to one of the two aforementioned female hairs recovered on the victims or on the remains of Miss Waterman, which also resulted in the conclusion that the mitochondrial DNA profiles are the same at all compared positions common to and between samples, specifically at a rate that would um, exclude 99% of the North American population. 
Uh, so based on the foregoing, while 99.98% of the North American population can be excluded from the female hair on Costello and 99.6% of the North American population are excluded from uh, the female hair on Waterman, it is significant that R.H.'s wife cannot be excluded from either of the female hairs recovered on the remains of Megan Waterman and Amber Costello. And as previously noted, defendant Hewerman's wife was out of state at the time, so it wasn't his wife's hair. Um, so the male hair, let's see what they got on Hewerman. Um, so during the initial examination of Miss Waterman's skeletal remains and the burlap materials, the Suffolk County Crime Lab was also able to recover a male hair from the bottom of the burlap used to wrap Miss Waterman by her killer. An initial examination of said hair revealed Caucasian European characteristics that's certainly consistent with uh, Mr. Human. However, the hair was unsuitable for further DNA analysis at that time by the Suffolk County Crime Lab. The hair was subsequently submitted for further DNA analysis, and on about July 31st, 2020, Forensic Lab was able to generate a DNA profile for the hair removed on the bottom of the Waterman burlap, um, specifically determined that his hair belonged to, mito- to a male in the mitochondrial haplogroup V7A. Now they're going to tell us about how that excludes um, all this percentage of people. What is this? Oh, this is when them getting into the pizza. So <clears throat> very famously, um, they have DNA ties from a piece of pizza crust that they recovered from a garbage bin. This right here is a picture of that garbage bin uh, that they recovered it from. They say that following the discovery of the Chevrolet Avalanche, which was registered to defendant Hewerman, and the investigation of cellular billing records and other items, on or about January 26th of 2023, a surveillance team observed and recovered a pizza box thrown by defendant Rex A. Hewerman into a garbage can located in front of 385 Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. See below, and this is the trash can in question. And this is the pizza box, and there is the pizza crust. Um, I wonder if he ate that whole thing himself. That looks like a pretty large pizza. The pizza, this pizza box was sent to the Suffolk County Crime Lab for analysis where a swab was taken from the leftover pizza crust in honor about March 23rd of 2023. The Suffolk County Crime Lab sent the swab from the pizza crust abandoned by Hewerman to Forensic Lab 2. A detective hand-delivered uh, from Forensic Lab 1 a portion of male hair on Waterman to Forensic Lab 2 for testing. On or about June 12th of 2023, Forensic Lab 2 was able to determine as to the male hair on Waterman and the swab from the pizza crust that the mitochondrial DNA profiles are the same, specifically at a rate that would, as per the EUMPOP database, exclude 99, uh, 99.96% of the North American population from the male hair on Waterman Based on the foregoing, while 99.96% of the North American population can be excluded from the male hair on Waterman, it is significant that Hewerman cannot be dis- excluded from the male hair recovered near the bottom of the burlap, essentially saying that he's part of the percentages that can't be excluded. Of course, that's pretty significant. There's only a handful of people. Um, so, leading up to the arrest 
um, arrest and search of Huberman, his residence, and other locations. On or about the evening of July 13th of 2023, defendant Huberman was arrested by Suffolk County police officers. Searches of his residence, as well as other locations, are currently ongoing. And at this time, at the time of his arrest, defendant Huberman had on his person the burner cell phone uh, 347, or well, the one ending in 2671, which was linked to a Thawk email account that he was using for those dating profiles. Um, that mantra hadn't said that he probably thought he was a catch. I think he probably did think that, honestly. Um, used to conduct online searches described above. And those are the ones that we had already gone through. Um, if convicted on the current charges, defendant Huberman faces multiple sentence of, sentences of life without parole. Uh, remand without bail is appropriate, of course. And then they talk about why that is dated uh, July 4th. And that is Raymond Tierney, uh, the DA, uh, Chief Assistant District Attorney um, of Suffolk County. And so that's what we have uh, for Mr. Heumann. It is, um, they have a ton of evidence tying him to the case. Um, a lot of the more salacious details that, you know, a lot of people become interested in with this case um, I haven't seen much on that so far. Um, I can just tell you based on the web searches that he conducted that what likely happened is he got these women and he tortured them probably for a significant period of time. Um, I'm interested to see whether or not he recorded any of these uh, encounters with the women. Um, that's seems to be a pretty common feature with the serial serial killers of this type. Um, I don't know, a sick individual. Going back uh, to uh, some of the things that you guys were saying, um, <laughs> Mantra hadn't said of his uh, dating profile picture, he's a negative seven, but I think that he probably thinks he makes up for it with the brightness in his face or whatever. Uh, maybe he feels like he's got soft eyes. Maybe he feels like his intelligence and his and his, uh, his witty banner could overcome uh, some of his physical deficiencies. Or maybe he feels like, uh, I don't know, uh, women like tall men. I'm 6'4", so what gives? I don't know. But I could tell you this. Um, this guy, for all of his life, is probably used to walking into a room and um, bullying people around using his sheer, his, the sheer force of his ogre shape, height, weight, the width of his body, um, his presence, he probably tries to intimidate. And I think he probably gets a false sense of um, his ability to attract women based on how people cave to his intimidation tactics I could tell you that from what I've seen in some of the videos that I've seen on this guy um, giving interviews to various people, um, all related to um, his profession, that um, he's really full of himself. He's, he has a high regard for um, his capabilities and what he's, you know, um, he's just very confident. Um, it makes me sick to imagine what the victims must have gone through because usually with a guy like that, you know, there, there's always a bully, but there's always the counter bully. There's always the person that is there to, um, you know, kind of balance that out, but he gets them 
in these secluded places. Um, and he proceeds to torture and humiliate and um, got said, saying God knows what. But not only that, but, you know, extending that into his, uh, the, their family members, extending that into um, taunting them with, oh, I know where your daughter is. I know where your sister is. I know where your wife is, your girlfriend is. She's dead. And this is, you know what she did? You know what she said before she died? A gentleman, not a gentleman, a person that is able to do that to another person um, is nothing short of demonic. Whether you attribute that particular adjective uh, to religious pretext or not, to mythology or not, if there was ever a definition of a demon and you were to um, make it a tangible thing, it's Rex Heuerman. So what happens next? Um, well, um, there's going to be a lot of things. There's going to be the grand jury, pre-trial, uh, preliminary hearings to see if they have enough evidence uh, to hold them to answer for the charges. Uh, you know, um, I don't think there's any mystery there. There's going to be enough to bring them to trial. Um, they're going to bring them to trial. They're, this is going to be a trial case. Um, what unfolds from here on out, I'm not sure. I just know that there's been a lot of attention with this case. Um, a lot. I don't know if they're going to issue a gag order or not on this case. Um, I'm not certain if the, the defense attorney that is handling the case right now is going to remain on the case or if he's going to get some kind of private counsel. If he's working in Midtown Manhattan, I'd imagine that the guy has the ability to obtain uh, private counsel. I know that his, his wife has recently filed for divorce as of a couple of days ago. Um, I don't know what she's going through, but she's certainly going through something. Um, to answer some of the major questions, um, you know, who is Hewerman? I mean, he was a 59-year-old architect, a married father of two. Um, he was planning to retire on a secluded South Carolina property. He was arrested and charged with the, with the first degree murder of these three victims. <clears throat> they're working on a fourth and really they're probably working on seven others and, and any other victims they could, they could tie it to this guy. Uh, the evidence that they use to, to get him so far, it appears to be, uh, phone records, DNA evidence, internet searches, they have um, a substantial amount of evidence. I would say they probably have more on this guy than they do on uh, the Koberger case, um, just by virtue of the internet searches. Um, how did the police and authorities miss this for so long? Well, let's talk about that. So, these disappearances stem from like 2010, 2007 to 2010, um, they catch him now. They're investigating other crimes. Back in 2009, 2010, when I used to be at the district attorney's office, um, cell phone data was a thing, but it wasn't as much of a thing. Um, Google searches were a thing, but we didn't really know how to use it the way, they, the way that they're able to use it now. Um, it's a lot easier to recover that stuff I think just the advances in technology, GPS technology and the like, um, it's changing the way that people can get away with things. I mean, think about the entire history of all of that. Back in the 60s and 70s, there was no DNA evidence. So all you had to do, and, and by the way, there's, there, wasn't any, there wasn't a whole lot of surveillance video out there either. Nowadays, everything is videoed. 
no matter where you walk, if you walk outside of your house, and many times, if even if you're in your house, you're constantly on video. I could tell you that in my house, I have several cameras that are in the major living areas um, that document, you know, because I have people coming over. I got children. I got to make sure I know where everybody's at and that kind of thing. Um, if you step outside, your neighbors have ring cameras. They have um, doorbell cameras and those kinds of things. Um, you're constantly on candid camera. There's not a lot that you're going to be able to do to conceal um, your whereabouts, even if you try to, oh, well, I'll just leave my cell phone there. Well, I mean, law enforcement is hip to that. If you leave your cell phone for an extended period of time, well, that's a red flag because they could track um, where you've been pretty much forever. Google keeps track of that kind of data um, pretty much indefinitely. And it's becoming more and more the case that the way that these cases are being solved is by virtue of Google tracking of your cell phones, which uh, very meticulously within, you know, to an accuracy of a couple of yards or feet, rather, um, they know where you've been. This, this young lady that just faked her disappearance, um, one of the ways that they knew that she was full of it, and, you know, allegedly, right? But when she goes out and says, oh, I'm, I'm observing a toddler. I'm looking at this toddler right now. And then she pretends to be kidnapped, whatever was going on with that. Um, well, they found out that on the time that she was on the phone with 911 saying that she was on the, you know, tracking this toddler, she traveled about 600 yards and there's no two-year-old or toddler that's going to be able to cover that distance in that short a period of time. Um, there's, there's just a lot of different ways now that we could tie things together. If you're trying to cover up this kind of a crime, um, the things that you're interested in are very difficult to hide. This guy thought he was getting away with it because he had burners. Well, guess what? They tracked the burners. How do they track the burners? Because of the GPS location. Okay, well, shut off the GPS. You know, maybe that's a way. But, you know, at a certain point, you know, um, the only way that you're getting away with any of this stuff um, at any point in time is by unplugging yourself. Richard Kaczynski style, the Unabomber, going out to live off the grid. No electricity, no internet, uh, no whatever. Um, you're just out and hiding. You're off the grid. Maybe then uh, you could conceal yourself, but, you know, not, there's not a lot of people that could function uh, that way um, individually by themselves, by the lonesome, and um, make it work. But uh, to answer that question, that's pretty much how it is. How reliable is the forensic evidence? Well, it's um, the Google searches are pretty freaking reliable. The DNA, I, I can guarantee they're going to, they, they always attack the DNA. There's a million different ways to attack DNA evidence, as you're seeing in the Brian Koberger investigation. But Google searches are a harder thing. If you recall, um, back when they did the Casey Anthony trial, um, they had DNA in that case too. But guess what? They um, attacked it enough. They attacked the scientific evidence enough to raise just enough reasonable doubt to get her acquitted. The one chance that they possibly had to convict Casey Anthony would have been based on a Google search that was made around the time of the disappearance of uh, Kaylee, or I think that was her daughter's name, Kaylee Anthony, um, <clears throat> where they were... There were, there were Google searches about suffocating a child. Um, for whatever reason, that wasn't enough to convict. But, you know, in this case, you have Google searches over a period of months going into years. Very specific searches um, on the victims that went missing, 
on some of the relatives of the victims. How would he even know? On the progress of the investigation about whether or not uh, there were any leads, about whether or not they found anything. Um, it's very, very specific. There's a lot of true crime people out there, but none that I know of that would have those specific Google searches um, on their phones. And this guy doesn't strike me as a, a true crime guy. Maybe he was. I mean, clearly for himself. Um, but he was narcissistic that way. He was clearly enjoying the attention that his crimes had uh, generated. Um, the current, what is the current legal situation? So he was taken into custody. Um, he, is, he has been placed on a suicide watch because I think he kind of knows that it's over. Um, he has pled not guilty to the charges. He's going to be, he's due back in court in a couple of weeks on August 1st. Um, if he's convicted, he faces multiple life sentences. Um, if, well, he's, he's clearly, if he's convicted, he's, he's never going to, he, he's going to be there for the rest of his life. No possibility of parole. Um, as far as the victims, there are 11 total victims in the Gilgo Beach murders that have been documented. So far, um, Hewerman is charged with the murder of three. And he is the prime suspect in a fourth. And that's kind of been highlighted in the uh, affidavit that we read together. Um, <clears throat> there is continued investigation as to the remaining victims to see if there's ties to um, Hewerman in those cases. Uh, but yeah, they're looking into it. So the, the victim list, I imagine, is probably going to grow um, as time goes on. And what usually happens in these kinds of cases is he discloses uh, the location of victims or confesses to some of the victims in exchange for uh, the death penalty being taken off the table. I'm not sure if that's going to happen in this case, um, but that's where we're going with this. Um, what is next in the investigation? Well, um, there's further inquiries into uh, the role that Hewerman may have played in the other murders for sure. And, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to tie them into uh, the other victims to see if, if that's there. I don't know if they have additional cell phone evidence that hasn't been disclosed yet as to those other victims. There probably isn't a lot out there, but if they've recovered all of what they recovered for these four, there's clearly, I mean, there, there's got to be a treasure trove of evidence that they could pull from. Um, what has changed in the police procedure? Well, I mean, we kind of talked about that. <clears throat> it's just better knowledge of how to utilize some of this uh, internet data that we're able to pull on, on these crimes. So, oh, Lisa Lamb says that, um, <clears throat> pardon me, um, if my voice sounds funny, I apologize. I've been in trial all week long. This is kind of the first day that I've had a chance to breathe. Um, I was in trial all week. Um, we just finished uh, yesterday. And um, we did, you know, we did really well. But the consequence of that is my voice is uh, starting to go. Um, so I'll do my best. Um, Laughing Hawk says that the media needs to leave his wife and kids alone. Yeah, I mean, unless they're going to make them a suspect. I mean, I can't imagine. This lady's been married to this guy for this long. 
The second that she hears about it, she files for divorce. Had she known that any of this was going on, I'd imagine that would have happened a long time ago. Um, he's got children um, similar to the Alex Murdoch case uh, where they were put on you know prime display because that was a televised trial that lasted for six weeks. Um, yeah, leave the family alone. I mean, they're dealing with enough. They need time to grieve. They need time to process when they're ready. I'm sure um, they'd be willing to talk about it. They, they need to go through their processes themselves uh, to deal with everything that's going on. Um, Lisa Lamb said that the dude's front porch is being held up by two by fours. Um, <laughs> that is true. I don't know how much money he has. That's a, that's a, that's a fair point. Um, but at the same time, um, what was it? The famous pilot, one of the richest men, um, in history, he made that, he, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio played him in a movie. Um, he was the richest man in the world and he was hiding out in a hotel room in Las Vegas with uh, buckets of urine all over the place, um, walking around disheveled. So sometimes, sometimes the outward appearance is not necessarily the measure. Um, but regardless of whether it is or not, regardless of how much money he has or not, I don't, there's not much way out of this case. Um, I think the biggest struggle that, that, that the, uh, prosecution is going to have is finding a jury that doesn't know anything about this case. Um, finding a jury that hasn't already been tainted by the information that's been out there, but you know, we'll see. Um, laughing Hawk says that I bet they, um, tow more kills to him. And yeah, tie more kills. No doubt about that. They're, they already got grounds. Um, they, they already have inroads on a fourth victim. I'm certain they're going to find more. How much more it remains to be seen. Um, Carly Russell is a mess of a situation. Uh, Howard Hughes, that's who it was. Howard Hughes, that's who I was thinking of. Yes. Um, Howard Hughes was a, a, a mercurial um, individual um, who I believe, well, I know for a fact there's, there's famous stories out there about how, you know, he was the richest man in the world at the time, 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, he was living in a uh, hotel in Las Vegas and um, would rarely go out. I mean, he would make calls to like network TV to, it was his former pay-per-view. Hey, uh, never mind the scheduled programming. I want to watch whatever movie he would do. And then buckets of urine all over the place and um, never took, never, never bathed. And he just kind of lost it after a while. Um, I also believe that he was a uh, hoarder. Although don't quote me on that. I, I don't recall. I haven't read about that about uh, Mr. Hughes in, in quite some time. Um, he was a germaphobe with syphilis. That's quite the combination. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Um, well, uh, everybody, it's, uh, this has been episode 44 of the Tilted Lawyer podcast before my voice uh, gets any more hoarse than it already is. Thank you guys for listening and participating with me. It's been a pleasure uh, to bring uh, this episode 44 to you. Um, next week, I'm not sure what direction we're going to go, but I'm going to put some posts out and try to gauge interest. I have a several different directions of which I can go uh, moving forward for next week. Um, but this week was Shadows on Gilgo Beach, um, the story of Rex Hewerman and um, the investigation that uh, continues to, uh, to develop as we go. We're going to be covering his trial as it unfolds. Um, but before my voice gives out, I just want to wish you guys a very happy 
wonderful uh, weekend. Uh, make sure you keep your, lo- your your doors locked. Make sure you keep your loved ones close. Um, you never know what's going to happen in this crazy world. And with that, I'm going to see you guys uh, next week. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening to the entire podcast. We really do appreciate that. And as always, you can find us on YouTube on the Tilted Lawyer Podcast YouTube channel or on your podcast carrier of choice. If you feel we've presented anything of value, please leave a five-star rating, like, and subscribe. We always appreciate that kind of thing. And we do look forward to seeing you all again live every Thursday at 3 in the afternoon. We love you all. Take care. Bye-bye.